Our study of Deuteronomy chapter 5 today presents us with an incredible reality. Enjoying God, including Him in all of our activities, obeying Him, this spiritual priority does not kill life, it empowers it. Living for anything else or anyone else leads only to meaninglessness and disillusionment. Who or what is holding your life together today? Here is our study leader, Dave Burtson, to share with us about the reason why God is so jealous for our absolute devotion. We're going to spend all Deuteronomy chapter 6 with Moses explaining and interpreting what it means to have no other gods before him. It's an exclusive relationship of devoted child love to an ultimate dead. It's the exclusive devoted life of the ultimate spouse to the ultimate lover. It's why God says, don't have any other gods because all the other gods are false. All the other gods are imaginary. All the other gods, when you get ready to step into eternity, they won't be there. You might see blinding lights in this life. You might have exotic experiences. You might have incredible sensations. But when you go to make that split-second jump into life everlasting, the Lord God of Israel, the Father of Jesus Christ, alone will be there. Isn't it great when you have him in your life and you know he's going to be there forever and we're safe? That's why we study the Word of God. That's why we pray. And when I find myself growing cold in those disciplines of the Christian life, I go back to this foundation. Dave, what's happening with your love? What's happening with your relationship? Now the next command, the second command, is very much related to it. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Then Moses goes on and says this. You shall not make, in verse, uh, verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now just to show you the residual old rebellious nature that's inside of us, when we read those verses, what do we focus on? The jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the fathers of the third and fourth generation. You notice how your eyes focus on that? And then we go on to say that that isn't fair. God is mean. You see there, that proves God is mean. Now, I want you to notice the way the math works out in this verse. It says God is a jealous guy, which is what I've been teaching you. He deserves our devoted love. He says for those who spurn him, for those who reject him, he says that he'll let that go on to the third or fourth generation. It says that to the thousandth generation. Now, how does that math work out? Three and four, several thousand. He'll show mercy and devoted love. But our nature gravitates on, God, you're not fair. Now I want you to know something also. That little statement, punishing the children for the sins of the father down upon the third and fourth generation, 
The book of Deuteronomy, as we go through this book, one of the basic ethical commands is going to be, you shall not punish the sons for the sins of the fathers. In Ezekiel chapter 18, there's an entire chapter that Ezekiel the prophet gave to us wrestling with a misinterpretation where people believed that the heavenly father in heaven would punish a son for what his father did. And it was a misinterpretation of this second commandment. Because the Old Testament's very, very clear on individual responsibility. It says that a person will be punished for the sins that they do. You say, well, Dave, what does this verse mean where God says, I'm a jealous God and I will punish the children for the sins of the father down upon the third and fourth generation? It is a recognition of the way that life usually works. You see, if you as a mom and dad wander away from God, all over this area there are children whose moms and dads know nothing of the word of God. They know nothing of Calvary love. They know nothing of forgiveness of, of the resurrection. They do not know the covenant relationship that's available with God. Their kids are raised as unbelievers. Now, what happens in their life? I would challenge you. A man who's gotten very much involved with reading to small children. And Van has come to me one day after another, just brokenhearted, saying, a little boy came up to me and said, this is the first time that a man ever read to me in all of my life because my daddy's not at home. And then he says, well, where is your daddy? And he says, I don't know. What is that? You see, sin creates an environment of unfaithfulness. It creates an environment of disobedience. And that has tremendous effects. And the tendency will be that child that's raised with a daddy who let him down, that daughter that's raised with a parent that's let them down, will tend to go out into the world believing you can't trust anybody, especially you can't trust God. I mean, if there is a God, why didn't he meet my need? Why didn't he take care of me? And that tremendous circle of sinfulness goes from one generation to the next of those who hate the Lord. All over this area, there's little children that are raised, and the only time they hear the name of God is when it's done in blasphemy and cussing. That's when they hear. And what God is saying is that for three or four generations, that can continue, but he's also saying that he'll put a stop to it. He'll only let it go so far, and then he'll reach in his grace, and he'll reveal himself in a powerful way. He's not saying that he vindictively judges kids for the sins of their father. He just recognizes that the normal reality of life is that kids tend to follow the spiritual values of their parents. Now, that's a great challenge to us. He says he's going to show mercy and loyal love. But my most favorite word in the Old Testament is that word for God's loyal love to us, to the thousandth generation of those who love him. You know, the neat thing about that is that any one of you at any given time can switch from a God-hater to a God-lover by amazing grace. My dad, my dad at up to 19 years of age, the only time my dad ever went to church, he went to church very regularly on Christmas and on Easter. And the basic motivation he went to church was to be able to, to just try out 
and see who the better-looking girls were. When a buddy of his started sharing the gospel of John with him, he tore it up in his face and just cussed the guy out. And oh, I thank the Lord for dear George, who as my dad tore up those gospels of John, George just handed him another one. I would never do that. I mean, my little, I'd be so, I would be so intimidated, but not old George, man. He just kept handing my dad another one. My dad got tired of tearing him up. And finally, finally, the message of the Gospel of John reached into his heart. And that initiated for our family a whole new generation. And my dad was able to tell you about all those grandkids and all those great-grandkids and all of those kids know Christ as their Savior. All of those kids know the story of salvation. I could have some of you share. You can think back over your lives. And I want some of you that just received Christ, I want you to just recognize the incredible joy, the incredible privilege that you have of becoming the foundational generations to the thousandth generation of those who love him, of those who give their hearts and their lives to him. Now, why does God say, don't make any images? The Lord isn't saying that there shouldn't be art in our relationship with him. But all over the ancient Near East, the ancient Near East was filled with little figurines and big statues, and they were put right at the heart of the temple. The specific temptation the Israelites had is if you were a Canaanite, when you came and gathered at the center of your worship would be an idol. The idol would represent Baal, and it would be like a big bull that would represent fertility and power and the, the conquering spirit. And the idea of the bull was that Baal, the invisible storm god and the god of thunder and lightning, rode on the top of this bull. And next to this bull would be this female idol that was a symbol of fecundity and of, of fertility and all that went with fertility cult of, of Canaan. And that's what they worshipped. Now what God said is God said to the Israelites, at Mount Sinai you saw it no form. There is a transcendence in God. There is an invisibility in God. God is unlike anything, anyone you've ever met. He is the exclusive one of a kind. He's the only person that deserves to be called awesome. We call everything awesome. Coke is awesome. But in the real use of the English language, awe to inspire terrifying fear in the face of ultimate transcendence, only God is awesome. That's what God is saying here. And you know what he's saying? He's saying there's nothing, you can't do anything with your hands that will adequately represent him. You can't make a figurine that will represent him. There's another problem with, with when you do that. The idea in Canaanite worship is that you went to the temple and Baal and Ashtar were there. And you would worship this fertility god and then you could leave and guess what? You could do your own thing. And that's why God said to the Israelites, Israelites, I don't want you to make any images because if you make an image that's supposedly representing me, the representation will be wrong. It's not what I'm like. Like if you make a little gold statue and you look at that priceless gold and you say, well, that's what God is like. You're going to worship money. 
And God says, money doesn't mean anything to me. I pave streets. I use it for gravel where I live. God says, little gold statues are just nothing to me. So don't focus on gold. If you make a beautiful temple that's ornate and all that beautiful stuff, don't focus on it because that's not me. And that's why we begin in the Old Testament with the invisible God, the spiritual God, the one that is everywhere at all times, in all places, the one who knows all, all of those omni-characteristics of God, omniscience, omnipresence, the omnipotent one. He says, don't make anything. Don't look at the stars and try to fashion some celestial God. Don't look around the earth and make some kind of an animal God. Don't make some fish God. He says, that is all the creation, and I'm the one that spoke that into being. But don't ever think that that's what I am. But I want to share with you a much more fundamental reason why God says don't make any images. Because if you make a little idol, the image can't talk, it can't speak, and most important of all, it doesn't have any personality. You say, well, Dave, how do we know what God is like? What is the representation of him? What's the, what's the form that this invisible almighty God uses to reach us? And the answer is you. And then third commandment builds on this idea. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't build a graven image because you're the image and in Christ and the New Testament perspective that image begins to be recreated in us. But the next statement is often misconstrued. The third commandment says this. In Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says, you shall not misuse. This is verse 11. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, a lot of people ask me, what in the world does it mean to curse? What in the world does this verse mean when it says, thou shalt not misuse the name of the Lord your God in vain? The Hebrew literally says this, don't use the name of Yahweh for an empty purpose, for a valueless thing. It also, the Hebrew word also, it's a word shav. It even, it even sounds like, you know, it even sounds like emptiness, shav. But it goes on and has the idea of don't deceive with the name of God. Now, I want to begin on one level. I want to begin because you're probably, you know, most of you don't really think this through. I have people all the time that say, what's the big deal about cussing? In fact, there's even some preachers that in the freedom of grace say, oh, you can just cuss all you want to. So they cuss even on a Sunday morning. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying, what God is saying in this commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God for an empty, meaningless purpose. Now, in the ancient Near East, the name of God meant something. If you were a Canaanite, for example, you would put curses upon somebody with the name of Baal. In Egypt, there were whole groups of people who would use the names of the different Egyptian gods to cast spells. If you're a missionary from Haiti, you would know all about the Voodoo spells. In modern America, we don't think that much about it. But basically what God was saying to the ancient Israelites, don't you dare use my name for magical, occultic purposes because I am God, 
And I decide who I bless and who I show mercy to, and I'm not some magical God that you can manipulate like Aladdin's genie. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? Somebody messes you up. The IRS sends you a letter and they've messed up your whole account for the year. And your response comes to your mind, God damn it. I'm just going to spell it out and just tell you just straight. Now, why do you say that? Now, I want you to think about what those words mean. What does damn mean? Damn means in English to send someone to eternal damnation. It means hell. To send them to hell. And what you're saying is, I want God to damn them. Now, I want to ask you a question. Maybe you don't like the IRS, but we might have an IRS person right here today. Now, do you really want to stand up and you want to say, I want to bring hell, the curse of God upon that IRS agent? No. If you do, then you're sick. And that's what's wrong. You say, well, Dave, that's not at all what I meant. It, it means nothing to me. It just comes out of my soul. Then you've used the name of God for an empty purpose because you've said, if you say God damned something, that it doesn't mean anything. And all the shortened form to that. Usually you don't get the whole thing out. God damn this. You just say, damn. What's wrong with that? It's using the name of God either in an empty way, saying that you don't think his name means anything, you don't think it has any power, you are repudiating the name of God. When I go into the hospital when you're sick, you know what all of you ask me to do? You ask me to pray to God over you. If another believer comes to the room, you want them to pray. When I was young in the ministry, when I was a little bit scared, sometimes I wouldn't pray, and a whole bunch of you got all over me. Pray with us. You're our pastor. Pray with us. Why do you want me to pray? You want me to call the name of God. You want me to pray, dear Lord, and you want me to pray blessing upon you, healing. You know what? I think there's power in that. I really believe there is power. I think you touch God. I'm his son. You're his children. I don't think I have any more special touch with him than you do. But I want to tell you something. If I call the name of God, if I call upon it, I think it means something. My whole life is built upon that. And I think you do too. So stop cussing. Don't use his name lightly. In the middle of a football game, you know, Reg, uh, Reggie White at Philadelphia Eagles loves to talk about a guy one day, you probably read it in his biography, talked about a big lineman. You know, every, thing, every other word was Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And man, Reggie's a born-again believer, and it just really got on his nerves. Man, I just hate this. And boy, he got down in his stance, and that big old Reggie got down in his stance and said, you better watch out, Jesus is coming. And he flattened that guy, and man, that guy knew he was not using the name of Jesus in vain again. Because when he used it wrong, pow! There was power behind that representative of God. Cussing does me. So you say, all of you say, just hell. Every time something goes wrong, you just say hell. You know what you're saying? Go to... Do you really want to tell your kids, go to... Is that really where you want them to go? Then stop doing it. Because words mean something. You know that all the Israelites had was the Ten Commandments. 
That's all they had. The words of God. They didn't have figurines. They didn't have statues. They had words. You know why? Because in the beginning, God said, and words create reality. And all of those words that we use, we could go right down, you go into the other words, a whole bunch of cuss words are used for the defecation of the human body. A whole bunch of the words that are used in cussing are about the, the defecation, the, 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 the expulsion from the human body. Is that where your mind is? Is that what life is? You know what people are talking about when they speak like that? They're saying life is a bunch of... You know why they say that? Because for them it is. That's all they have is emptiness and meaninglessness and alienation. Why shouldn't you as a child of God do that? Because your life is not just that. What do you call sexual relationships in the unbelieving world? What do you compare it to? If you had the most beautiful symbol on planet Earth of what a relationship with God is supposed to be, the, the incredible union and the incredible celebration, how would you like it if you were the Lord God of heaven if people used, used words that just compared it to defecation? And on and on, you can take every one of the cuss words and analyze what they mean in English, really. And you'll find out that you're either using God's name for a, a horribly evil thing to call a curse upon someone, which I don't think is any of your intents, or you're just using it in an empty way. And God says, my children, don't do that. Because I'm not empty. I'm not meaningless. I'm really there. I'm really there for you when you pray. I'm really there for you when you cry to me. And words are very important. What about those ejaculations against your children or, or your friends when you just suddenly come out and like we, we studied in Matthew chapter 5, you just said, if you call somebody an imbecile, you idiot, that's cursing them. Are your kids really idiots? Are your friends really idiots? Is that really what your heart longs for with them? You say, Dave, I never thought of it like that. Well, a lot of times I haven't either. That's why we have to go back over the Ten Commandments, because we slowly slide into life just isn't that important. And words just really don't mean anything. And our Heavenly Daddy this morning comes back to us and he says, my children, don't have any other gods before me. And I say, why, Heavenly Daddy? He says, because there aren't any other gods. All the other ways that you hold your life together, all the other things that you use to bring meaning are ultimately dissolved into nothingness. But I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the land of slavery. He says, don't make images with your hands. Don't try to represent me with the creation that I've made because I transcend that creation. But remember, you're the image. You're my representative. You express the personality that I have. As Jesus works in your life through the new birth, you start to express the character that I have. And then I begin to touch your tongue. 
and you begin to use words to build others, to save others, to powerfully build their lives in a positive way. Ultimately, you can even use your tongue to bring the words of eternal life by presenting the gospel. Don't use my name to curse people. Don't use my name for empty, meaningless things. Don't talk about the sacred flippantly. Let your tongue be connected with your heart and let it speak words of devotion to me and love for one another. Well, we started out our program today asking some questions about what gets you perking, what gets you going when uh, that alarm clock goes off in the morning, and what brings enthusiasm and what gives you hope. And I, I couldn't help but think as we were thinking about the drive that we need in life that there's probably some of you out there that say, Dave, to be honest with you, I really am in that pit of despair, and things really have crashed, and I'm very despondent. It's possible that in the midst of that pit of despair that the loving God that we've been talking about today really wants to minister to you. Sometimes when it's when we come to that zero point, when we come to the point where the pickup truck doesn't satisfy us, where that big raise and that big position in the company doesn't bring joy to us anymore or enthusiasm or when that house just decorating that house one more time just isn't going to do it that disillusionment with just everyday life can be the doorway to help you to come into what it means to really live and that is to enjoy god to live moment by moment recognizing his presence to live to love him and to live to receive his love you see, that's why the Lord Jesus came. We could never love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Without Jesus Christ coming into our life, we naturally live and focus on other things. And yet, that's the very reason Jesus came. He gave his life on Calvary so that our idolatry, our tendency to put other things at the center of our life could be forgiven. And then when we admit our needs and we invite Jesus to come in, we begin a love relationship with our Father in heaven that will last forever and ever and ever. And this is the meaning of life. I trust that as we've talked today about having no other God before the living God, that you will make that love relationship the meaning of your life. 